0: Well, good day, everyone. Uh, lovely to see you. I'm Dave. Uh, if we haven't met before, uh, congratulations to you guys who are backing up uh, from a weekend away, as well. That is impressive. What we're going to do today because of that is we're going to have an ad break in the middle of the talk. So I'm going to get to a point, and then you guys have never watched Freeware TV. There's these things called ads, and they are in the middle. Anyway, uh, we'll have an ad break in the middle of the talk where you can get up and just stand, stretch your legs, and, and wake up is pretty, pretty much uh, what I'm talking about. But good on you guys. It's, it's wonderful to be here with you. And I don't know if you like sport or not, um, if you're a big sports fan, but it has been a huge couple of weeks in sport in every football code that we have, besides soccer, and who really cares about soccer? So, Rugby Union, we had the Wallabies destroyed by the All Blacks. Do we have any Kiwis here tonight, actually? Any? Get out. No, 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 it's great to have you here. We love Kiwis here. We've got the best ones here. You know, the ones over there, though, just leave them. (laughs) Then last Sunday, of course, we had the NRL Grand Final. Any Panthers fans here tonight? Any? Any? I was going to say, get out, but I was also going to say, what's your wallets if we do have any Souths fans? Any Souths fans here? Any Souths fans? Okay, get out. No, no, no. it's great. It's great uh, to see uh, the NRL flourish and blah, 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 blah. However, the biggest news story this week was actually in a code of football I've never watched before called AFL. Have you seen that before, AFL? And the reason it was such a big story and of such um, prominent note was because it was actually about the Bible, Are you guys aware of this story that happened during the week? Um, If you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll give you a flyover version uh, of it. Uh, During the week, Essendon, one of the clubs uh, in Victoria, uh, appointed a CEO called Andrew uh, Thornburn? Huh? Andrew, that's him. And um, (laughs) appointed Andrew as the CEO. And less than 24 hours later, um, he was forced to resign. Uh, The reason is because he's the chairman of a church in Melbourne, Uh, who hold um, biblical positions on several moral issues. So the issues are uh, homosexuality and abortion. Now, we are not going to speak about those issues tonight. (sighs) We're not going to speak about those issues tonight, although they are significant. And it's worth saying um, that uh, I personally and we as a church actually hold the same positions as Andrew and that church. Um, If you don't, If if you're a visitor, we love you, no problem at all, but love to continue that discussion. Um, But that's the position that Christians for the last few thousands of years have held. However, what I really want you to pay attention to was uh, not so much the positions he holds, but the response he received from politicians and the media. I don't know if you saw that. Um, I want to give you some quotes uh, from politicians of both the left and the right wing, so we'll all be unhappy with each other uh, and can blame each other. Here's a quote from, um, well, not a quote, but just a, a snapshot of some of the words Dan Andrews, who's the Premier of Victoria, Labour Party Premier, he used these words to describe the views on abortion and homosexuality. Uh, that, uh, he used these, these words. And a- Dan Andrews uh, identifies as a Catholic, by the way, but he says uh, these views are appalling, intolerant, hatred, bigotry, and wrong. Okay. Um, Peter Dutton, who's the head of the federal, uh, the federal Liberal Party, the Conservative Party of Australia, um, he thought this man shouldn't have been forced to resign, but he then said that these views that he holds are abominable. Abominable. Um, and he could not disagree more with them. And then in the media, it was as if, you know, it was as if this guy was a pinata, and just boom, 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 he just got attacked. Even David Kosh on Sunrise. Have you ever seen Sunrise? Oh, you know. Like, it's a very light-hearted kind of show, but um, Koshy had the pastor of this church on, and he just, he went at him. He went really hard at him. Uh, and the Bible, he said, the Bible is a 2,000-year-old book. Why would you read it in that way? Why can't you be more tolerant, more um, inclusive? Um, now, I just want to say, uh, what's going on? You know, this is hard. This guy's on a. In the soccer during the week, we had people doing Nazi signs. Okay, I get that. That's an outrageous thing. But this is. These aren't particularly extreme positions. What's happening? Well, I just want to give you a couple of observations before we look at God's word and um and some thoughts about it. Number one, as many of you, I'm sure, are aware, um, we are in the middle of a cultural revolution. Um, it's particularly hitting uh, your generation and. Um, uh, and even younger. And the culture Revolution is all around the issue of morality, uh, and there's a new morality emerging, new ethics, new values, um, ones that pride themselves on tolerance and diversity, uh, and they're proclaimed very loudly by people with in- incredibly loud platforms, media, entertainment, education. Uh, and uh, what that means is biblical Christianity is squarely in the, the crosshairs. Uh, there's there's and the reason for that is because the Bible teaches a morality which uh, is very different to the new one. Uh, and the new one doesn't have any time for the old one. It can't understand the old one. It thinks it's horrible. And, and that means there's a culture clash. It's worth just identifying. That's the reality of the world that you live in. And I'm sure you've experienced that if you're a Christian. At work, at school, at uni, at home. Um, I'm sure you've felt that kind of pressure already. Now, that's what's happening. Um, however... The second thing I want to observe and point out to you is that I'm utterly convinced that this response, the outrage, the shock, the horror, the accusations, the incredible hysteria at biblical morality, this response is actually a critical misunderstanding on behalf of the people of New Morality. But what I'm saying is they are reading the situation completely wrong, which is leading to their outrage. I'm not saying they don't understand our moral positions, although I don't think they quite get it, but you know, they're in the right ballpark. No, no. Um, What they've misunderstood is how we feel about them, the emphasis we place on them. You see, many people think Christianity is entirely about morality. Do you know what I mean by morality? Behaviour, doing good, ethics. You know, do this, don't do this, the way that God... Many people think that the very core, and maybe you do, the very core of Christianity is how you act. But my dear friends, that is the opposite of what Christianity is about. It's, and, and if you think that we're all about morality, then you hear the morality that we have. Well, then you think, my goodness, this is, these people are dangerous. I think that's a critical error. But also, get this, I think um, the hysteria and the... the the, the, the over-the-top reactions, the over-reactions about these issues that we're seeing. Um, I actually think uh, what it's done has, has um, clouded uh, people's ability to see the thing about Christianity that actually is outrageous. You see, there's something about Christianity that is entirely incompatible with the world. There's something about what we believe as Christians which is deeply problematic, to our society, and they're missing it. What is it? It's not what the Bible says about homosexuality. It's not what the Bible says about abortion or gender. It's not about any of those things. It's the diagnosis the Bible gives us about every single human that's the outrageous thing at the heart of the Christian faith. That's the thing which is so problematic and so offensive that if people got it, if they understood what it is that the Bible is saying about them, whoo, you think Koshi would explode? My goodness. Yet, see, my friends, I'm convinced that for us as Christians, if you're a Christian here tonight, We need to grasp hold of this diagnosis of humanity as firmly as we can. Not just to preach it to ourselves, but also to articulate it as clearly as we can to everyone we know. Even though it's offensive, even though it's problematic, even though it's difficult to hear, because even though it's all of those things, without understanding it, people will die. Without understanding it, people will never understand Jesus. And without understanding the bad news, they'll never be able to be transformed by the good news. You know what I mean? So what we're doing tonight uh, is we're going to look at both of those uh, things, the bad and the good news. We're going to look at the diagnosis the Bible gives about every human everywhere, every single one of us, but also look at what God has done about it. Now, there's few better places for us to see that than Ephesians chapter 2. So with your Bibles open, have a look at that, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at the bad and the good, and then spend some time talking about how understanding the big picture changes how we view our own lives and the lives of every single person we know. So let's get right into it. Ephesians chapter 2, have your Bible there, first three verses, we are looking... First of all, at the diagnosis God gives to every single person you know. Everyone. Your best friend, your worst enemy, your, your, your nana, your parents, your ki- no, your, if you've got kids, your kids, whatever. Everyone you know. This is a picture. You. Ephesians chapter 2. I'll read verse by verse and we'll just spend some time thinking about it. Let me read it out. As for you, you were dead. In your transgressions and sins. We are dead people. The Bible is clear all the way throughout. We are spiritually dead. Why? Because we're in transgression and sin. Sin is the rejection of God. Rebellion against God, it cuts us off from God. God is the source of all life. So by being cut off from God, what we have instead embraced is death. We're like flowers, you know, you cut a flower off the vine, and yes, it can blossom and and produce a nice smell and and can look like it's alive, but of course, from the minute it's snipped off the vine, is it alive or is it dead? It's begun the process of dying, and it cannot be reversed. You and I may produce any number of incredible things in our lives, undoubtedly that's true, Yet, from the minute we're cut off from the source of life, we are spiritually dead. That is the Bible's diagnosis of you. Now, we follow the way of the world in that way. Look at verse 2. But not just the way of the world. Look what it says. We follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We follow this ruler. Who is that? That's Satan. What? (laughs) The Bible says that if you don't follow God, you follow Satan. Jesus, John chapter 8, we won't go there, but check it out later. Jesus says that anyone who is not following him is a child of Satan. Now, you might be thinking, whoa, whoa, what? And you'd be right to think so. That's an extreme, outrageous statement. And yet here it is, clear as day. Now, you might be thinking, oh, well... (laughs) Sure, that describes some people, you know, the evil, the mass murderers, you know, um, uh, people who were into death metal, I don't know, goths. It might describe some people, but New Zealanders, but not us, you know, not, that's not the way it describes. But look what verse three says. All of us also lived among them at one time. This is not just a description of the worst, the evil, the murderers, the the truly wicked and outrageously horrible amongst us. This is a description of every single one of us. We are followers of the world. We are followers of Satan, the spirit of disobedience, the, the master of lies. That's who we follow. We are spiritually dead. And in case you think, well, sure, it's not my fault... I'm being tempted by Satan, obviously. I've got the world, my friends, bad influence. I fell into the wrong crowd, you know, hung out with bad people. Uh, No, no, no. Look again, verse 3. Gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Flesh isn't talking about skin. It's talking about your heart, your thoughts, your actions. Where does sin spring from? Where is the fountain that it, it comes from? It's from your heart, my heart. We're not victims. You are not a victim. Now, you may be a victim of any number of horrible sins that other people have done to you. But your rejection and rebellion against God, no one pushed you off the ledge. You jumped! And you continue to do so again and again and again. And let me tell you, I know that for a fact because I'm down there with you. We're all in the same boat. Now, this is a black picture. Dark, dark, dark. It's like someone walks into a room and turns the lights off. Thump! And yet the Bible says this is reality. But I want to take it a step further. I don't want it. The passage takes it a step even further than that. Look at verse 3 ends. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now what's wrath? Wrath means anger. This is talking about God's anger. God's anger is not like ours. It's not a tantrum at being hungry or a bit tired. You know, It's not like just this impulsive, reactive. No, no, God's Anger, his, 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 his wrath is measured, it's calm, and it's deserved. This, that sentence, is talking about hell. That sentence is saying, we deserve to go to hell. You might have heard of um, hell described as the absence of God. None of us like, by the way, talking about hell or thinking about, with good reason, what a horrible thing to think about but let's be absolutely clear on what the Bible says. Many of us have heard because it's such a difficult topic, and so that, that, that hell is the absence of God. Have you heard that before? You know, oh well, we say no to God, and so He grants our request, and we spend eternity away from Him in a, you know, a house where He's not there. That is not what the Bible says at all. Nowhere, hell is not the absence of God. It's the wrath of God. The fires of hell, so to speak. It's not the absence of God. That is the wrath of God. A wrath that we deserve for rebelling and rejecting against him. Turning our backs from him for our sin. My friends, this is God's diagnosis of you. It's his diagnosis of the person sitting next to you. It's his diagnosis of every single person you've ever met. It's his diagnosis of every single person before they're a Christian. A diagnosis of every single person you know who is not a Christian. No matter how nice, how pleasant, how kind, how generous, how charitable they are, this is the reality that God says. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you make of that? <laughs> what do you think of that? It's hard to hear, isn't it? You know? It's not an easy thing to hear. In fact, the opposite. Uh, Every term here at uh, EV, we run a a series called Life. We're we're running one in a few weeks' time, uh, kicking off on Monday nights um, in Term 4. We'd love for you to come along. It's for people who are looking into Christianity, who are thinking about the Bible, thinking about Jesus, ask questions, do whatever you want. It's an awesome time. Let me give you a a little bit of a a spoiler. Uh, In one of the weeks, we ask people this question. um, What is wrong with the world? we put it this way, what do most people say is wrong with the world? We say most people because it makes it easier to speak for yourself pretending it's not your own opinion, you know that's what we do. So what do most people say is wrong with the world? What does the average Aussie think is wrong with the world? Now it's at this point I want to give you an ad break. So why don't you take a break, I'm gonna give you 60 seconds-ish and Chat about that question with the person around you, or don't, but chat about it with them, and then we'll call back and do a bit of Q&A, not Q&A, call out some responses, see what we think. What do most Aussies think is wrong with the world? Take a break, stand up if you want, do whatever, but I'll start talking in a minute. Okie dokie. Well, what do you reckon? Anyone uh, bold enough to share out some answers? What do most Aussies, you reckon, if you ask all your friends, or whatever, what would most people say is wrong with the world? What do you reckon? Political corruption, Political corruption, and, injustice. Political corruption and injustice. Yes, great answer. Political corruption and injustice. Yes, yeah, totally right. Global warming. Global warming. Global warming. You know, this morning at church with all the old people, not one person said global warming. You know what they said? Young people. No, they didn't. They didn't. Old people. Old people. Ah. Oh, they're the worst old white people. Oh, no. No, I can't say that. Don't. I'm an old white person. Don't judge me. Okay, what else we got? Huh? What? Poverty. Thank you. So, by the way, I am actually legitimately part. Partly death. Um, so this is a terrible exercise for me to do. I don't know why I'm doing it. Poverty. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Poverty. What about um, uh, morality? Is there any, mora- any sort of um, thing within a, an individual that you think most people say, that's what's wrong? Everybody else? Yeah. Greed. 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 Selfishness? Arrogance. You know, it's funny. I, I've um, run courses like Life here, but also in you know other, Western Sydney, overseas, whatever. And all the answers we get are usually pretty similar. Um, however, there are always two answers we never get. Two answers that we never ever get in answer to the question, "What's wrong with the world?" Does anyone have a guess what they are? Me. Who said that? You? Yes, you. No, that's right. No one ever, ever, ever says, I am. What else does no one ever say? Well, no one says sin, correct? No one ever says nothing. No one ever says, well, there's nothing wrong with the world. Do you know what I mean? Everyone knows there's something wrong. We just have to turn, you know, you know what to do. Open your eyes for 10 minutes. You know there's something. All of us know something's not quite right and yet we can never ever take responsibility for it. It's always someone else. It's them. 50 years ago it was the immigrants. Today it's the whites. 60 years ago it was the Germans. Today it's the Chinese. In the Ukraine it's the Russians. In Russia it's the Ukrainians. To us, it's my boss, my teacher, my lecturer, my parents. It's them. It's them. It's them. It's them. It's the greedy. Oh, the greedy. They're the worst. Not me. It's the selfish. They're terrible. I mean, not me, obviously. I'm not. It's the lie. Oh, wait. It can't be the lies, because that's me. Okay. It, oh. And yet the Bible's unapologetic, crystal clear diagnosis of you is that you are the problem. It's you, it's me, it's us, we sin. we reject God, we don't listen to what he says, we turn our back on him, we are spiritually dead corpses, we are corpses, we follow the devil, we are facing the wrath of God and it's exactly what we deserve. The problem is the human heart. Now, can you imagine if David Koch got a hold of that? Imagine the headline. One of the accusations against biblical Christianity is that we're not inclusive, but that is absurd. Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world. David Koch on national television says, you think, you say that homosexuals are going to hell. What's the answer? And so are you, so is the cameraman, so am I. We're all in the same boat, a boat we've chosen to jump into. It's all of us. Now that, I want to repeat, is a black picture, isn't it? It's not a picture of life that we like to tell ourselves. In fact, the opposite. For many of us, we like to pretend things are okay. Um, In fact, uh, the the, the dialogue, the narrative of the world is that, well, no, most of us are pretty good. The world's going okay. In fact, the world's improving. That's not what the Bible says at all. Now, what's fascinating is the responses that people have to this opinion. Not opinion, this this teaching of the Bible, this center of of Christian faith. There's always two responses. Number one, deep offense. And maybe that's you tonight. I get it. It's not easy to hear. Spiritually dead? A corpse? A sinner? How dare you? For many people, it's a darkness that they can't deal with. No, no. But what's fascinating is that for others of us, it's this very darkness which actually allows us to see with more clarity and more understanding than we ever could have imagined. You know, you go to the city, you go to Sydney, you know, or whatever, any city, and you look up at the sky at night time, what do you see, nada, nothing. You know, you've got the smog and pollution. You've got the lights of the city. You can't see the stars. You can barely see the moon. Things are always shrouded by what's happening. But you go out to the bush, you go to the countryside, deep, deep away from any civilization and look up, what do you see? It's a masterpiece. Pfft. Stars and solars and planet, everything. And why is that? The stars are above the city as well. They haven't gone away. What is it? You can't see them in the city because it's not dark enough. You know? It's not black enough. It's all the other things that are shrouding it and distracting it, so you can't see clearly. You can't see the reality of what is above you. But when you have pure darkness, absolute pitch black, it's then that you see reality. And it's that reality that changes how you can then see light. I want to put to you that it's only in understanding the Bible's diagnosis of you. Forget everyone else, you, right now. They can never allow you to then see the Bible and understand that the darkness the Bible presents is not the end of the story. What we're about to read next uh, is hope. A light, more than a glimmer, a ray of hope. I hope that changes everything, that transforms everything. Have a look at verse 4 and 5, and um, let me read this out. We were spiritually dead, but, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Despite our endless commitment and obligation to sin our self-imposed spiritual death and slavery to sin, we hear the most incredible truth God loves us not because you deserve it he loves you when you were dead in your sin he loves you when you were a spiritual corpse on the ground he loves you and because he loves you, what does he do? End of verse verse 5, he acts He saves us. He he makes us alive. And that's not resuscitation. That's resurrection. He brings us back from spiritual death. He brings us to life. What does he show us? The word is there. He shows us mercy. Now, mercy is a word that means not giving someone what they deserve. What do we deserve, do you remember, from God? His wrath, punishment. But instead of him giving us the wrath we deserve, what did he do? He sent his own son to take the wrath that we deserve. When Jesus died, he died at the hand of his own father. When Jesus died, he was treated by God as if he was us, as if he was me, with my lies and my cowardice and my utter corruption of soul at every element of me. Jesus was treated as if he was David Jensen. So what happened? So when Jesus died, when he rose from the dead, verse 5, God can show us, does show us, grace. Now grace is giving people what they don't deserve. Grace is an uh, uh, an action that has been a cause of infinite celebration among billions of Christians throughout the last 2,000 years. At its core, it's not, a, it's not a difficult word to understand. Although the definition can be you know, shrouded, at its core, what it means is generosity. Okay, God's generosity, undeserved generosity, undeserved love, and it is grace that Paul, the writer of Ephesians, is desperate for us to be captured by, desperate for us to shape our lives around. Look at verse 8 and verse 9, some of the most precious words in the entire Bible. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Our salvation, our becoming Christians, is based entirely, 100% on God's generosity. Not earned, not deserved, not bought, not purchased, given and received only through faith. My dear friends, we are standing at the precipice, at the cliff edge of the most revolutionary idea in humanity. Every other religion, every other philosophy, every instinct in us says, want good, do good. You want to get right with God? Well, eat this, don't eat that. Pray like that, don't pray like that. Cut your head like this, don't cut your hair like this. Wear this, wear that, and God will tick you off. You want a good relationship? You want a good career? You want good things? You've got to work, 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 work. And yet here, right at the center of the Christian faith God loves you not because you're good he loves you even though you're bad Jesus died for you not because you're good he died for you because you're bad heaven is not full of good people who've worked their way there heaven is full of bad people who've been saved my friends, that is Christianity. That is the Christian faith. And it leads us to a consequence, which for many of us, is the most joyful thing that we can ever think of and remember. What is it? Well, it means this. There is nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven. If you're trying, forget it. It's a waste of time. Forget it. You're a corpse. You're dead. But it also means... That there is nothing you have done that is beyond saving by the blood, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. No matter what is on your soul, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've seen, no matter who you've been with, no matter the things that you've done, the lies of your heart, you can be saved. God saves sinners. That's the Christian faith. So what do we have? Well, we've got these two contrasting truths, don't we? Number one, blackness. Spiritual death, deserving wrath. Number two, hope, light, life. The question is, how do you and I live lives that are shaped by what God has done in the present? We know our past is taken care of, forgiven. We know our future is assured, heaven. But what does it look like today? Because the truth is, we've only got one life. This is it. This is not a training run. That's not a dress rehearsal. This is it. We want to ensure that we pour our effort and energy and endeavors into things that actually count, not wasting our time in things that are meaningless. So how do we take those truths and apply them in our lives to change things? We're going to take another little ad break, but this one's going to be half the length. So just take a 30-second 30 30 second break. Just wake up, stand up if you're falling asleep. Um, I can see you. And we'll kick off in a second. Okay, so just take a break for a few minutes. All right, all right, all right, all right. So, go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And we're, going to, we're just going to look at verse 15. Remember the question, how do we take the reality of heaven and hell, the reality of, 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 um, of grace, being saved by grace, and shape our lives around it so we live lives that truly count? We don't waste our lives pouring into things that are meaningless, but live lives of true meaning. Well, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, um, he has advice for us, clear direction of what that looks like. Chapter 5, beg your pardon, uh, verse 15 to 17. Let me, let me read it out. This is what he says. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Okay, so... So he's he's saying several things here, but this is what I want you to to understand at the core of it. He's contrasting, just like he's already done, um, with death and life, darkness and light. He's contrasting foolishness and wisdom. He's saying, don't live like this, live like this. Now, you see here, a fool is someone who is unwise. What's a fool? Well, to be foolish, according to the Bible's definition, and every definition, is to be someone who is thoughtless who does not think about things, who does whatever they want, whenever they want, doesn't care about the consequences, doesn't care about anyone else, just does things. That is to be foolish. So what is it to be wise? You see here, verse 15, be very careful how you live. Careful, that word there, it doesn't mean cautious. Be very cautious how you live. It means thoughtful. Think about your life. Think about it. And then what? Live as wise people. What's wisdom? Well, if foolishness is being thoughtless, wisdom is being thoughtful. Thoughtful about what? Well, about reality. Being wise is someone who understands how life actually is, that life is the way that it is, that what's up is up, what's down is down. He's not fooled by, by fraud, by all these silly things that are going on, but actually is able to focus on what truly matters in life. So the critical question for us is, how do we understand reality? Verse 17 is how it ends. If you want to understand reality, you need to understand what the Lord's will is. Now, the Lord's will Um, A helpful way of defining, uh, translating that is what the Lord wants. We never see the Lord's will, the sovereign will of the Lord. The Lord wants what the Lord wants. So the critical question for us is, if God is giving you one piece of advice, one piece of direction, one commandment that you need to follow and, and run after, what would you say that it is? What is it that he wants for your life? What does God want for your life? Well, let me read to you just from the chapter earlier, verse 20 to 22 of chapter 4. And I want to see if you can pick this up because I think it's in here. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. He's talking about um, how you used to live before you were a Christian. That is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Now, listen to this. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitudes of your minds and and here's the key part to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness God's will for your life is that you put on the new self a new self that is like God what does that mean the new self that we are to pursue and put on as Christian people is the character of Christ who is God. What does that mean? Well, it's that last word, holiness. Holiness is separate, set apart, dedicated to God. Jesus is holiness. So God's great direction for us in our lives is be holy. To be holy, you need to be like Jesus. My question for you is a simple one if you know much about Jesus or you don't know much at all, what is it that dominated Jesus' life? You know, many people at that stage will say something like, well, uh, he, he, was, uh, uh, um, he was all about helping the poor and the disenfranchised. Nonsense. Not true. Oh, well, Jesus was a revolutionary. He was a political upstart who wanted to overthrow the the system. Nonsense. Not true. Jesus was a miracle worker. He came to show that he can do miracles and you can do miracles. Nonsense. Not true. How do I know that? Because he tells us what his life is all about. And he, he does all of those things to point to the very thing he tells us is at the center of his life. What is it? Well, you don't have to go there, but... Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus gives us his mission statement. What does he say? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. My friends, the center of Jesus' life is salvation. The center of Jesus' death is salvation is salvation. Jesus lived to please his father and to die to save human beings who are sinful and deserving of wrath. That is the center of his life. Why did he do that? Because he understood reality. He knew the terror of the eternal wrath of God. He knew the misery of a life lived separate from God. And he knew the power of God and resurrecting the dead. And so he shrugged off he shrugged off and turned away from earthly prestige and power to embrace what looked like foolishness, but in actuality was the wisest life that's ever been lived because he knew what was what. So the question is for you and I right now, and we'll we'll finish with this, in the context of the reality of our lives, eternity is at stake. And the only way you can be saved is by believing, trusting, repenting, having faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, or else you will go to hell. What is it that should dominate our lives? Well, let me illustrate this. I want you to imagine that you're a, you're a, um, you're a firefighter and you're called to a, a, a fire at a, at a farm, and you get there and you see that there's a huge shed, beautiful, modern shed completely engulfed in flames, and you see it's full of millions of dollars worth of farming equipment. Millions of It's obviously the farmer's livelihood. But you also see as you step back, that around 20 metres behind the shed, that there's a dilapidated old shack, a house, and that's also on fire. One of the neighbours of the farm, he runs up to you and he says, the farmer, his family, they're all in the house. They're asleep on the top level. What does the context of that reality demand that we must do? No matter what, above all else, save the family. You're bushwalking with your your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your best mate, whoever. And as you're walking there, walking ahead of you, and a brand snake grabs him on the leg and slithers off. One hour, two hours max, you've got, or you're going to die. They're going to die. So what is the context of that reality demand that you must do? Do you chase after the brand snake to get revenge? No matter what, above all else, get to hospital. Save their life. Every single person you know is spiritually dead by nature, by choice. Every single person you know outside of Jesus Christ's saving power is facing the wrath of God. And the only solution, the only cure, the only avenue is to hear the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. What does the context of that reality demand? Demand we must do, no matter what, above all else. Do everything possible. With all the time we have, to save as many as possible. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. And aren't you glad if you're a Christian? Aren't you glad that someone did that for you? Aren't you glad that your parent, your grandparent, your aunt, your uncle, your best mate, someone you don't even know, someone did that for you? Someone valued your life enough to go through embarrassment and social you know, um, shame, all those things that we associate with evangelism because they valued your life above their reputation. Wow. So let me finish with this question. What would it look like if you took that seriously? What would life look like if we took that seriously? Um, If you're not a Christian here today, I want to say to you, uh, we can't, no one can, we wouldn't begin to think of manipulating or uh, trying to, you know... (laughs) Put something together to, to guilt trip you into. My friends, the only way you can be saved is if God switches on, switches off the lights and lets you see his light. That's the only way it can happen. But it may be very possible that tonight, for the very first time, you have seen the reality of your soul, the dire condition of your spiritual reality, and also the glorious truth of Jesus Christ, death and resurrection. And you know you have never put your trust in Jesus. Do not delay. Turn to him. Come to him. Believe. There's nothing else that matters. Believe. But if you are a Christian, I understand the temptation when we're facing criticism, when we're facing um, pressure from the outside world, is often overwhelming. We feel pressure to either fire up, come on, I'll give you, or to cower, I'll just won't say anything. Or more likely, more likely, let's be honest, to do what? To compromise. Oh no, well, Jesus is all about love. Yeah, he is. And wrath. Jesus is all about inclusion. Yeah, we're all facing God's wrath. (laughs) It's never pleasant to tell people the truth when the truth is hard to hear. But my dear friends, the reality of heaven and hell and the wrath of God, that's what we need to have shape our lives. How we view our own life. Don't spend the next 40, 50, 70, 80 years chasing the dream of middle-class Australia. Oh, you got a house. Well done. No one else has ever got a house before. Amazing. You've made it. You're dead in the house. The house won't save you. Oh, you traveled. Oh, incredible. The people in wherever are the same as us here, facing God's wrath. The value of your life is in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, you know I'm not going to spend much time talking. I know I've said I'm going to finish five times, so let me just finish right now by saying, here at church, we are serious about mission. Mission is not done by professionals up the front saying, mission. Mission is done by us together as a church family, together, reaching as many as we can with the time we have possible. Life, next term. Summerfest, sign up for Summerfest. That was my first experience with mission ever. I also met my wife at it. Do it, it's great. Listen, (laughs) Summerfest, life, what else is I going to mention, John? Is there anything else? That'll do. Series. Summer series, so Coastal Mission Day this Saturday. Summer series over January. The summer series survey, which is the question you get to ask. All these things are done for you to reach as many people as we possibly can with the good news of Jesus Christ. That's life, and even better, by doing so, you get to become like Jesus. How hey, good's that? Only four minutes over, and I gave you two breaks. You can't argue with that. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you a minute though, 30 seconds, to think of people you know. Bring them before God in silence in your head and then I'll close our time in prayer. So bow your heads. If you're a Christian, think of people that you can bring, you can invite, you can talk to, that you can pray for. Heavenly Father, we thank you for every good gift you give to us. Most of all, we thank you for the greatest gift of all, your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, for those here who are not Christian people, who know now, maybe for the first time, the depravity, the wretchedness of their soul, but also the glorious, glorious truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. Lord, save them. Let them be stricken to the core and beg your forgiveness. Lord, forgive them. Let them have new life. And Father, for us who do... No one love you. We pray for courage, um, oh, for courage, to be bold in our faith, not to respond to criticism with anger or cowardice or compromise, but with love, with evangelism. Lord, that we don't um, win the battle but lose the war, that we love people enough. We love people's lives enough more than our own reputation. Lord, we bring those people before you that we've just thought of. We pray for their salvation and for courage to bring them to things. Uh, we pray all these things through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.